Well, it is wedding season, if you didn't know that. I know that because I am in, at, at present doing pre-marriage counseling for three couples. Um, this is tis the season. I, uh, I actually will do and officiate a wedding uh, this coming weekend and one at the end of the month uh, for my niece, actually. Um, and in all of this time of uh, counseling engaged couples, I remind them of something really important, which is there are clear reasons when you are engaged and about to be married, you can cite with clarity the reasons you fell in love with the person you're sitting next to. And it is very important for them to write those down. Um, (laughs) Because there will be seasons in your marriage when you start seeing things that weren't advertised on the front side of marriage. And you'll have to recall and remember that there were reasons that you fell in love with this person. Uh, Carolyn and I, as I've mentioned as many times as I need to here as we uh, get ready to celebrate 20, our 25th anniversary this summer, we, we spent a lot of time talking about our marriage. And, and in this past week, I asked her, I said, you know, I, uh, during those seasons when I was, let's just say, less than awe worthy of, as a husband, uh, less than honorable, uh, a guy you wouldn't want to live with. I said, during those seasons, what, what do you do? What did you do? What, what would turn it around for you when you started to feel sort of like, this is really difficult and he's not the guy I thought he was? And she said very quickly, it's usually when we, we would be spending time alone together and I would see some, you'd say something or you would do something that would remind me of the guy I started dating back in 1989. So she, she would say it, it would be a, a gesture on my part that would be loving towards her. Or just in the course of a conversation, the two of us talking, she would laugh or something would remind her, oh, okay, yeah, you know, this is why I love this guy. I've been amazed, to say the least, that uh, Carolyn uh, has endured. She has been much easier a spouse than I have been. And uh, I know when we start to think about what it means to grow in our love for each other, she and I, and what it means to actually uh, grow as a married couple, uh, that at the heart of that, was a challenge that both of us agreed upon on the day we were married, which is that we were going to demonstrate the love of Christ to each other for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death parts us. This is what couples this month will be vowing to one another as I officiate, but they're really doing this before God. Part of that process is that we need to, in order for marriage to work, you need to be willing to adapt your behavior to, another, to another's desires. And you have to love them enough to be able to make those changes. This, friends, is at the heart of Paul's appeal in our passage today from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. We have committed to studying this book in depth this year. And I always like to joke on days like today that I'm going to go all Calvary Chapel on you. Because uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to talk briefly about verses 2 through 4, and then we're going to like laser focus on one verse. 
I mean, we're going to like talk about conjunctions. I mean, this is, you know, we're going to go like in-depth, verse-by-verse kind of exposition. So my friends up the street at Pasadena Calvary will be really thrilled to know that we've employed their biblical exposition strategy. Uh, I, I want to begin, though, by looking at verses 2 through 4 and, and, and letting that kind of set the tempo for what Paul is getting at. He is both showing the people what it means to repent and also giving them this beautiful picture about what it means for us to turn to God. Verses 2 through 4 of 2 Corinthians 7 reads like this. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In this section, Paul continues what he began last week. If you didn't hear last week's message, you can get those online. His appeal to them to be restored to intimacy. He opened his heart to them and said, I want you to open your heart to me as well. He's calling for a full reconciliation between them, urging them to make room in their hearts. He reiterates that he hasn't done anything to deserve being shut off. But in this passage, Paul demonstrates the grace of God by genuinely speaking his pride in the Corinthians. You think, well, how does he have pride in a group of people that he has expressed over a couple of letters great exasperation with? How does he he sincerely say, I love you, I'm proud of you? He's reaching out with grace to demonstrate the reconciliation he's been preaching to them. And one specific reason that Paul can sincerely speak of his joy over them is that he has heard good news from Titus. Now, Titus was a guy, an envoy he sent, one of the fellow church planter apostles of his day. And Titus went with this letter. It was called the severe letter. There was 1 Corinthians, which you can read in your New Testament. And then there is known of, even though we don't have the details of it, it's spoken of, a second letter that was sent that Paul refers to as his severe letter, which means he said some things that were not easy for them to hear, probably not easy for him to say, and it caused this division in them. They had effectively people coming into their midst who were heretics, who were preying upon uh, the opportunity that was presented at this moment, this critical moment where Paul was saying, your behavior has to change, and, and they went, oh, yeah? Well, why don't we listen to this cat for a while? And, and so in this, into this breach uh, goes the error that was a part of the super apostles, these, this one particular opponent of Paul's. And so Paul then sends another letter, and, and here, and he gets the response. He sends Titus ahead of him to say, you know, how did they deal with the severe letter? And Titus tells them, they're beginning to turn back to you. They're responding to this. And this gives Paul joy. So he really is saying to them, I take such great pride in you. I'm so happy to hear that you're responding to this. It's giving me joy. But Paul does something that I think is critical. He is not only talking about reconciliation and grace, he's demonstrating it. It's It's actually something that all of us can take away as a very practical principle. 
he managed to find the one good thing. So he didn't concentrate and focus on all of the negative crud in the relationship he had with somebody. He actually took the effort to go, okay, what is it that I can give thanks for? And in doing so, what he did was, he said, I'm going to lead in my appeal to reconcile, whether it's with a relationship that you have with somebody or any number of things in life, he's going to begin that by saying, I'm going to be good. I'm going to, be, uh, I'm going to speak gracious words of affirmation and love. I'm going to appeal to your heart to let you know that I really do love you. And why this is critical is just that Paul's been talking about the gospel where Jesus comes to us and says, I love you unconditionally. And appealing to them and saying, what's going to make you follow Jesus is his heart of love towards you. And many times all of us feel like, well, what in the world is lovable about me? And Paul is demonstrating with the Corinthians, okay, I'm going to tell you that I have great love and joy when I think about you. And, and what he's expecting is that instead of bringing the smack down, they're actually now going to be kind of wooed or drawn back into a turnaround towards him. The verse 1 of our passage today, uh, I love the way that it's rendered in the New International Version, which is incidentally oftentimes not as accurate as the English Standard Version and just in terms of the way it's rendered. But in this particular case, they, they've really knocked it out of the park in the way they, in the way they attach uh, the expressions. And, and I want to read verse 1 to you from the New International Version. Paul's declaration is, Therefore, now this is after he told them open their hearts to him, Therefore, since we have these dear promises, dear friends, we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. See, Paul is seizing the opportunity that is presented to him to draw really cool comparisons to his call to the Corinthians to turn and come back to relationship with him. And he's demonstrating to them, this is how it works with God too. I'm going to, I'm going to be gracious and kind. But at the same time, Paul is going to cause them to reflect on the promises of the gospel the love and the affection that God has shown and in turn shown by Paul. And then they're going to be asked to turn from their rebellion back to real relationship with him. And in this call to turn away from the heretic and back to his relationship with Paul, Paul is giving us the definition of the subject that we're going to cover today and next week, which is the subject of repentance. Now, that word in itself, sometimes people will just like buckle up when they hear it because it has the feel of that, you know, that stormy Baptist hellfire and brimstone guy, repent. And, and then people, I just don't want to go to a church where they talk about that kind of thing. And so, you know, what absolutely people, they, you can't get away from it in the scriptures. So you go to, what does it mean? And yes, it has been stereotypically fit into certain subcultures in such a way as to make it sound less than appealing. But it really is a call to us to turn from whatever it is that we're doing that's keeping us from relationship with God. And in Paul's case, he's saying, you're embroiled in this thing and you're kind of facing this false teacher who's not really your friend and I have been your friend 
and I've been appealing to you to open your heart to me and come back to me. And so you literally are going to have to physically turn away from him and embrace me. And, and this is really the picture of what repentance is. And so for the first of two things I want to share with you from this particular verse this morning, which will go back and forth between the English Standard Version and the New International Version of this first verse of 2 Corinthians 7, the first concept that we need to grasp about repentance is that it is commanded. We are commanded. Repentance is not optional. It is something that we are called to do. In the, new, in the English Standard Version, this verse says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, the, in the New International Version, it says, therefore. In this translation, it says, since. And as Brooks talked about just weeks ago, anytime you see the word therefore, it's a transition verse where you have to ask what preceded it. Why is the therefore? What is it there for? And, and, and so we're looking back, and he was just talking about the promises from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit is going to live in believers. He's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. The Spirit indwells you if you are a Christian. And he's saying, in effect, if it's true that God goes with you everywhere you go, and that he will never leave you, then we are called to honor his presence by not only turning from all defilement, love that word, don't often get to use it in this sentence, actions and attitudes that are sinful and offensive to God. We're supposed to turn away from these actions, but more importantly, we're to turn to God to find the life we are craving. So we are turning away from things that are occupying us and not doing a very good job of satisfying our souls. And we are called to turn and find our life in God and in Christ. Now, we are saved by faith alone, and this is an important caveat for me to make sure you understand as we talk about the turning to God. Because some people will talk about faith and repentance as if they are separate things. That somebody could have faith but not repentance. Or that somehow or another, the notion of turning to follow God is not uh, in and of itself, um, uh, how do I say this? Uh, that that if you, just, if you just have faith without repentance, that somehow or another you could be a Christian. And what it's relatively clear is that these two things, the turning away and turning to God, are so intrinsically linked that, that really that you can't have faith in Jesus. You don't begin a relationship with Jesus. You don't follow Jesus unless there is turning involved. You're kind of sort of deluding yourself to believe otherwise. But really, repentance, somebody who's turning to follow Jesus, somebody who's engaging Jesus, somebody who's in relationship with Jesus, that is the evidence, that is the fruit, if you will, of your profession of faith. It is that which happens as a result in many ways of saying, I'm going to hear the call of Jesus, and by his grace, I'm turning. It's all one big package of turning and placing your faith in Christ and, and following him. And, you know, the, the tendency would be for people to parse it out and break them up into separate things. It's really one big ball of following Jesus. Even though the scriptures seem to say, as is the case in Acts 3, 
when the apostle Peter was preaching, he said, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed from you, for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What I'd like to focus on is not so much whether or not they had faith before they turned to repent or whether repenting was before the faith. It doesn't really matter. The issue is repenting is turning. Repent, turn back. It's saying, I'm not following God. I'm going to follow God. Now, this doesn't happen just once in our lifetime. This is, for a Christian, a daily experience. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're not rescued from death. It doesn't mean that God will ever see you as more holy and righteous in his sight because of Christ than he does right now. But what it does mean is that every day we're going to have to get up and say, okay, once again, by nature, I'm going to turn away from you. Today, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to give you my heart again. Next week, we'll develop further the biblical concept of repentance. But for today's purposes, what I want us to see is that we've been commanded to turn from our sins and turn to the Lord. What is critical for us to get and why this type of message is really foreign to our culture here in North America is people don't like being told they must obey. I mean, you can actually see t-shirts around that are a mockery of the concept of authority altogether. So people like to think in theory that I'm a, rebe- I'm a, rebe- I'm a rebel and, 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 I, and I don't like, uh, let's question authority and, and all these things are kind of celebrated as a part of liberal progressive culture. In reality, the scriptures are very clear that there are some things that we as believers are forbidden to do. See, and in culture, you know, kids nowadays, <laughs> and I have a couple, um, and I can tell you, strong-willed young men don't like the word, you know, I forbid you to do this. They'll say, forbid, I'm, what, you know, forbid. <laughs> you go, yeah, forbid, I forbid you. So you, you can be theoretically progressive until you have kids. <laughs> and then you realize, hold on, there's some rules here. This is my house. And you're not going to do whatever you want. So it's kind of a, you know, this ivory tower sort of uh, progressive thought that we're not going to have any requirement of obedience and, and it really has produced in our culture a whole generation of people whose parents come to their defense when they backtalk teachers. And we've seen evidence of it that there is a, a growing sense that you know, law enforcement's afraid to enforce any laws for fear that they're going to be accused of doing something they didn't, they didn't really do. It's because oftentimes people now are saying, you know, you don't have to listen to the police when they say stop. And that's a, that's a dilemma we face. I don't want to justify or excuse inappropriate or illegal behavior by law enforcement, but you, know, you want your kids to know that when the police tell you stop, you've you got to stop. And when the teacher tells you to sit down and be quiet, you sit down and be quiet. So you can see that when we start talking about things like repent, obey, <laughs> there is in us naturally something that goes, Ugh. And then there's in something in us, all of us, culturally, that goes, no way, Jose. I'm an American with a capital A. I obey nobody, you know? And somehow or another, that's supposed to, you know, be okay. But there is no developing 
of a healthy relationship apart from a commitment to change. It's true in marriage. It's true in our relationship with God. If you want a healthy relationship with God who happens to be perfect, then you're going to be doing some adjusting along the way. Got a birthday card this past week from my lovely wife. On my 50th birthday, she wrote, quote, I'm proud of the man you are at 50. Now, you can read that a couple of different ways. I would have preferred she had written, here at 50, I'm very proud of the man you are. I wouldn't have blamed her if she wrote, I'm proud of the man you are now at 50. Because the man I was at 25, I'm telling you, I wouldn't have married that guy. And along the way, for our marriage to have worked, there have been many places where I have had to say, I have to adapt in order to love you well. You have every right to have a husband who isn't quick-tempered or harsh in the way he speaks or unloving in his actions or selfish or demanding. You have every right to have that as a husband. And if I'm going to love you well, I'm going to have to adapt and change. So truthfully, I wouldn't blame her. Now, she's sweet, so she didn't mean that. But I wouldn't blame her if she did. And for you and I, if we're going to say, hey, we're going to be in relationship with God, he can be simultaneously loving. And as a matter of fact, the most loving thing he could do would be to tell you to stop doing something that dishonors him and is really bad for you. And calling you to change your behavior is not an act of like selfishness on his part. He's saying, do you want to, I want you to love me and, and I want you to like take care of yourself and I want you to glorify me. And so I'm commanding you to turn away from those things. This is, this is scripture. We, we have to do that if we want to love him. But here's the second thing I want to share with you this morning from just verse one of chapter seven of 2 Corinthians. And that is repentance is commanded, but reverence for God is cultivated. You might say today, as I have sat in your place on a number of occasions, when somebody started talking about, uh, uh, when, something is t- when somebody is talking about uh, uh, repentance, and I'll start to think, I-, I don't have any love for God. I don't have any love for Him. And-, and in the scriptures, it talks here in this verse, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So you've got this sense in, in, in other translations, especially in the NIV, it says, out of reverence for God. So we're called to fear God, to revere him, but that doesn't mean we're scared of it. It means we're supposed to be in awe of him. We're supposed to be in awe of God. And that is something that you can cultivate. You may sit right now and go, I'm not in awe of God. Join club. That would be most people most of the time. It takes real work to get your mind and heart in a place where you see God for who he really is. And it takes the grace of God to sort of open our eyes and our hearts to seeing what scripture would tell us about who God is. Let's start off, though, with the first word here, beloved. This is an important phrase. Uh, You know, the scriptures say, since we have these promises Beloved. It's interesting that Paul, it's a really tender thing that he would refer to people 
in this way. It's, it's a term of affection as if to say, I love you. You are my beloved. You are my valued. I'm, I love you. That's such a strange concept. People say, well, isn't that part of Christianity? But Paul was a rough and tumble guy. And, and I was thinking as I was preparing this message this week that I've never stood in front of you as a church and said, you are my beloved friends. And this would be the first time in coming up on five years as a church that I've stood up in front of the church and said, I really love you. It's, it's an odd thing. And it, it might be part of our culture. It could be a part of like, you know, guys. Uh, I don't know. But what I do know is that Paul is, it's not a small thing that he is, he's actually, you know, revealing himself and saying, I love you. This is no small thing for me to tell you this. He's also in communicating that, echoing what he said other places is that we are collectively the beloved of God, that we are loved by God. See, his love, his passion, his willingness to speak of them in these affectionate terms mirrors our status and the Corinthian status as the beloved children of God. And it contains in it the key for our motivation towards repentance. Our motive for cleansing ourselves from sin is God's love for us. Oftentimes, if you grew up in church and many of the people that would come to prison would have been ex-church people, uh, you, you were at some point beat up and you just emotionally were told, you know, you're not good enough, you're never gonna be good enough and you were constantly in this place of great sorrow and if you get shamed into changing your behavior, it might work at best for a little while. But it doesn't promote long-term love for God or long-term change for that matter. Our call, what Paul is calling the beloved to, is to fear or revere God. And this is something that you actually develop. This is something you actually cultivate. As I mentioned before in my relationship with Carolyn, it's in those times alone with her where we have discovered again and rediscovered again our love for each other. I watched a Journey documentary this past week, and I know that really dates me because Journey rocked it in the 80s, man, when I was in high school, I gotta tell you. Then I watched this video, and they're all like old, and I'm thinking, wow, is that what I look like now? Oh, my goodness, how did that happen? But one of the favorite songs uh, of Journey, one of my favorite songs of Journey is written by Jonathan Cain, um, and the song's called Faithfully, and there's a line in the song, Faithfully, that he talks about being on the road and then coming home to his love, and he has the joy of rediscovering her. And I thought, you know, that is really touching. You know, you, to be away from somebody you love and then to reunite, and it's been so long that you you it's almost like your first date again. You're rediscovering why it is that you fell in love with them. Reverence involves the emotions and the affections. And these aren't things you can simply manufacture. It takes a miracle of grace that we can as Christians pray for that we would see Jesus for who he is and that God would give us his grace that we would, through the spiritual disciplines, cultivate the ability to see. Studying scripture about the attributes and the character of God is a critical piece of this. 
having the eyes to see him clearly, as Jesus said, or the ears to hear when the Spirit speaks to us. This is really important. I, today, as you walked in, you may have gotten a, a, a tender yet inexpensive gift from yours truly. Um, and that, you know, for some of you who don't have a bookmark for your Bible, uh, what, what, that's effectively what I'm, what I'm offering to you. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got free ones. We're a church. We come prepared. <laughs> so if you need one, we've got uh, ESV, NIV. We've got any kind of translation that uh, we think is reasonable. And so we can, and these are gifts. Somebody's paid for them, not me. So, you know, please take advantage of them. We, we would encourage you to read scripture because, not because it's the religious thing you're supposed to do five times a day facing Jerusalem. Uh, this is not something that is a requirement of salvation. We read scripture so that we can rediscover again the majesty of God. And in rediscovering the majesty of God, we have our affections for him rekindled and we cultivate a reverence for him. On one side of this is a really long chunk of a book I've read by Dr. Larry Crabb that um, you can read on your le- at your leisure. Um, on the other side, though, is, is a portion of Psalm 119, which is Davi- King David's treatise on the importance of making God's word a part of your life. And I do want to read those 16 verses to you, they'll be up on the screen if you don't have your bookmark in hand. But I'd like you to, if you can, carry this with you, put it in your Bible, and remember the importance associated with looking at Scripture. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have, kept commanded your pre, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently on that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And the reason King David could delight in the statutes of God and the law of God and the picture of Scripture is that it's one big picture of who God is. And it's in knowing Him that we love Him. One way we cultivate reverence for the Lord is not only reading Scripture, but not neglecting other means of grace that God has provided for us to be able to see clearly who He is, hear clearly what He's saying. One of those means of grace has been fellowship. It's being together. It's being in corporate worship as you are today. It's the sacrament of communion that we will share. In all of those things, we collectively remind each other that we need Jesus always, that he's our spiritual food and drink, and that we need each other to remind each other of these things. 
Yet as was the case in the early church, you may be in a place of needing to repent of neglecting to make gathering with others a high priority in your life. And it's not uh, something God's slapping you on the wrist and saying you should be with people more often. He's saying, I want you to see me for who I am. I want you to cultivate this sense of awe about who I am. And one of the ways you do that is being around other people who are in the same boat as you, sharing in the spirit that were promised in the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. These promises that we have of the Holy Spirit's ongoing presence in our life, we experience him through each other. See, these promises are what cause us to reflect on him and who he is, and we develop an awe, we develop a reverence, and we start to actually become concerned about altering our behavior because we want to please and love God. We start to hear from him what our soul is dying to hear. We are his beloved. He loves you more than you can even Conceive. Sometimes, just to throw people off, I'll text them, and I may text you someday this way, or I'll send you an email that says, God likes you a lot. Because for some people, they get the whole, like, God loves me, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's kind of like it kind of rolls over you, and you feel like I've heard this before a hundred times. But to see, you mean God actually enjoys me? God actually created me and is fond of me? That he doesn't just put up with you? He loves you. He really likes who he made you to be. He's fond of it. See, we need to hear clearly the Spirit's communication with us in this. The president of Princeton Seminary, Craig Barnes, says this, this is the most critical subtext of all human life. Until we hear this voice from heaven claiming that we are cherished by a God who is well-pleased with us, We will never be able to truly cherish anyone or believe that we are their beloved as well. We have to receive love in order to give it. And the primal love has to come from the God who Jesus called Father. As many of you found out in your email this past week, my beautiful wife threw a surprise party for me. And uh, I appreciate your coming there. Um, my wife is not a public speaker. I teach public speaking. We're attracted to one another because we have different gifts and different interests. And I was sharing with our brothers this weekend on our, our elder retreat. Um, this was officially the first time my wife has ever gotten up in front of a group of people and talked about me in any way. <laughs> so you got to understand, it took 25 years to get here. Um, but it was... It was for me this amazing experience of this woman really loves me, (laughs) you know, because she doesn't kid around, you know what I mean? She obviously hasn't spent 25 years kidding everybody by having public speeches all the time. It's not her temperament, mind you, but I would just tell you, my wife is not frivolous in the giving away of compliments. She, She loves very well. She loves her kids. She loves her friends. She loves her husband very well. And so for her to not only intentionally plan a surprise party, which I was completely blown away by, uh, I was not expecting in any way because it would be a first for me, Um, but to have her actually express her love for me in front of people, I can't tell you what a revolution that 
And for the last three days, I have not been able to stop telling Carolyn that I love her. I have not been able to stop when I see her grabbing her, holding her, kissing her head and telling her I love her. I've not, I must have texted her 10 times on Friday. Do you know how much I love you? You see, we are moved to love people when they love us. And you are going to, I am going to cultivate love for God, which is effectively what makes us repent and turn to him. You cultivate that by hearing him tell you, I love you. I'm fond of you. I care for you. I will never leave or forsake you. That's why Paul would say, all of these promises that were given to us in the Old Testament, the Spirit will live with you, remain with you forever. These things are what, in light of those promises, we're called to cleanse ourselves from the things that would displease God and dishonor God. It's because He's promised you He's never going to leave you that He's calling you to love him. It's because we can now see the mercy of God so clearly in Christ. We can then say we are going to work to perfect holiness out of reverence for God. Let us pray that today our, our not only our worship but our communion together would reinforce this reality for us. Jesus, today we're thankful and amazed to hear what we're we're just dying to hear, which is that you love us. We, uh, we're thankful that your spirit has given us grace to be able today to hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. Jesus coming to tell his children, I love you, follow me. I love you, turn to me. I pray that that reality would create within us a passion to cleanse ourselves from the things that are dishonoring and displeasing to you. And then to, Lord, cultivate each day a renewed sense of reverence for you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.